0: Hello and welcome to a Halloween edition of the True Exact Radio show. We have a Halloween special. I'm super excited for this one. Uh, of course, my name is Nick Fiorentino and alongside me doing this horror episode is my lovely wife, Michelle. Uh, and we have a really special guest, something I've been excited for uh, to, since, since we were in contact together. We have Sarah Karloff, the daughter of Boris Karloff, the original Frankenstein's monster who's right above me here. Sarah, how are you doing today?
1: I'm just fine, and happy Halloween.
0: Happy Halloween to you, too. I got to tell you, when I was seven or eight years old, uh, there were two things that my father taught me uh, to repeat ad nauseum. And the first was, I'm a huge boxing fan, so I was able, Muhammad Ali specifically, so I was able to repeat all of the nicknames Muhammad Ali had. Uh, for all of the fighters that he fought and the other thing my father taught me was the names of all of the classic horror movie monsters so i always knew as a young kid that bella lugosi was dracula lon cheney jr was the wolfman and your father boris karloff was the mummy and of course the frankenstein's monster so this for me personally is a real treat because uh as a kid watching these movies i mean i grew up with these movies i know they came out a long long time before i mean I, 1995 was when i was watching them but uh they had been out for a while, but I grew up on these movies, so this is this is a real treat for me.
1: Well, I call that good parenting. Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I uh, I agree. I agree. Before we get into, obviously, the, the movie uh, itself, I wanted to speak a little bit about your father before uh, playing the Frankenstein's monster. And, of course, Boris Karloff was born, William Henry Pratt, on November twenty-third, eighteen 1887 in Dulwich, England, uh, which was actually a short distance from the area where Jack the Ripper... Uh, was terrorizing people a few months later, which I thought was pretty interesting, just given the time. Um, he he moved to North America in 1909 uh, and began working as a farmhand. I guess my first question is, when did your father start dreaming of becoming an actor, and was that always the plan, or did he kind of fall in love with that when he once he moved to North America?
1: Oh no, he was he was trained for the diplom and educated formally for the diplomatic service. In England, he was the youngest of nine children. He had seven brothers, and all of them were also educated for the consular service. And most of them uh, did what they were supposed to do, which was going to the consular service. But not my father. He snuck out of school whenever he could to see a play in London. And um, he was bitten by the bug very early on. Um, he said um, when he performed in his first school play, he knew that's what he wanted to do for the rest of his life. So although he did um, see through his, um, see it to the end, his, his formal education in England, uh, the minute he was finished, he left England um, and took a ship. Actually, he, he uh, tossed a coin between British Columbia and Australia. Shows oh. you how much he knew about the acting business. Right. And, <laughs> uh, he ended up in British Columbia and he um, thought he had a job with on a farm and it was news to the farmer when he arrived, but the farmer took him on. He slept in the barn and did just heavy labor there. Um, and I don't know really how long he worked for the for the farmer, but um, he he did hard work um, on the farm, and then he eventually heard there was an audition with one of the uh, repertory theater groups. So he left the farmer and went and auditioned for uh, a part um, with this repertory theater group, presenting himself, of course as an experienced British actor, <laughs> having been in all these plays, um, which he had only seen. And, and once once in an interview, he said that how did he get his uh, first job as an actor? And he said, telling a pack of lies, of course. But he... Um, his salary was $30 a week when he set foot on the stage for the first time. And it was $15 a week when he, the curtain went down on his first performance because it was abundantly clear he had never set foot on a stage before. But at least he still had a job. And for the next 10 years, he worked for uh, three different repertory theater groups and um, sometimes getting paid sometimes not, sometimes working, sometimes not, sometimes working for the British Railway Company, sometimes working for other farmers, sometimes building sets, painting sets, uh, digging ditches, doing whatever he had to do to sustain himself for 10 years in British Columbia. He learned his craft. Fortunately, he was a um, quick study because they did three to five plays a week. Um, but it was a wonderful learning platform. And after 10 years in British Columbia, he made his way down to Hollywood and um, he got uh, roles at, in bit parts um, in, in, as an extra really first. And as he's told it, he was the fourth from the left in the fifth row. And, uh, but he was working as an actor and again, when there was no work, he would drive trucks uh, uh, for construction companies. Again, he dug ditches, lifted heavy cement bags, um, did anything to sustain himself when there wasn't work in the in in film business. Um, and he, then he was lucky enough to get, begin to get some bit parts, which were a little more showy. And um, he uh, was in the um, play, The Criminal Code, directed by Howard Hawks. And then he was cast in uh, the film. And that was a, a, a really a break for him because that was, a, although a small part, it was a showy part. And eventually, um, he was on the set at the right time. Uh, when um, Frankenstein came along, uh, Lon Chaney Sr. certainly would have done it had he not died uh, at a very uh, early age. And um, then it was offered to Bela Lugosi, who turned it down uh, because of all the heavy makeup and because it was not a speaking part. And um, James Whale asked my father, Uh, who was in the commissary at the same time on the studio lot, if he would like to come over and have a cup of coffee at his table. And my father, of course, was jumped at the opportunity to do that. And he was offered the opportunity to test for the role. And at that point, my father had been a starving actor in Hollywood for 10 years. And um, he tested I mean, he, he, he worked with Jack Pierce for two weeks make, on makeup, and um, um, he and Jack uh, worked long hours on the makeup. My father always said that Jack Pierce was an absolute genius. And finally, after the two weeks, they uh, te- my father tested for the role and he got it, and the rest was his- cinema history. But Frankenstein was my father's 81st film. And um, he'd been in the business 20 years. And as he said, nobody saw, saw the first 80 films.
0: I was going to add, that's, that's, that's really a tremendous story. And, and there's so much to take away from that. I mean, in today's age, you know, you, you see actors and, and everything. And they're, they're super famous. And you're lucky if you're, you know, within 100 yards of them. But here's your father driving trucks in between roles because there just wasn't work. Uh, and as, as you mentioned, um, you know, obviously spent a few dozen years in Hollywood before landing uh, the Frankenstein role. Were there any roles before Frankenstein uh, that he would have considered, uh, you know, really special to him? I mean, was he was he was every role he was in? He, he really liked or What were some of his favorite works before Frankenstein?
1: Well, uh, any any one of them just to be working. Any one of them. Criminal Code in particular, I think, because Howard Hawks, of course, was such a wonderful director. Uh, But a lot of the roles he played early on were ethnic roles because of his dark coloring. He played a lot of Indians, both uh, East Indian and American Indian. And uh, he played a lot of gangsters. Um, But, of course, the role of Frankenstein was such, um, the film itself was such a wonderful combination of talents. It was James Whale uh, as a brilliant director. It was um, um, Jack Pierce's genius makeup. Um, Although the film did not follow the book, it still posed so many of the same questions that Mary Shelley's book posed, the, the sociological and the philosophical and the, the uh, religious theological questions it posed. And the film posed the same, the same questions. And then my, my father's interpretation of the role, the empathetic interpretation of the role, all that, those things combined made this very special film, but nobody had any idea that the film would be the success that it was. And nobody thought that my father would end up being the star of it. They all anticipated, of course, that, that Colin Clive would be the star of it, the Do- Dr. Frankenstein. My father wasn't even in- invited to the premiere. So it was... I know. It was just, you know, it was just a combination of so many talents uh, of, of different sorts and kinds um, that it was, um, it, it just worked. And it was so groundbreaking. And um, it, it surprised everybody, including my father. That's one of the questions that I had. Was it, you
0: always hear of stories of actors on set, actors or actresses on set, and they kind of get that aha moment where they're like, We're onto something like really, really big. And I know you said, uh, And how could you know that it was going to be as big uh, as it possibly uh, was? And your father would go on to be, if not the greatest, one of the greatest movie monsters of all time. Uh, was there like an aha moment for him on set where he was like, we're we're onto something really big, or did he just kind of? I don't like,
1: think so. I don't think so. You know, I think, first of all, my father was a very modest, self-effacing man, very um, humble, and he remained that way throughout his career. Um, he wasn't into awards when he won the Grammy <laughs> when he won the Grammy for How the Grinch Stole Christmas, <laughs> which he adored doing. Um, he, he, he was in England at the time. The awards were given out. And so he asked his agent if he would go and accept the award for him. And so the next time he came over to, um, uh, from England to uh, America um, and to the West Coast for work, he went to his agent's office and his agent's name was Arthur Kennard. And Arthur uh, said, here, Boris, here's your Grammy. And my father took it and looked at it and and uh, turned it around. He said, it looks like a bloody doorstop. And he <laughs> took it and went over to the door in Arthur's office and put it down and left it there. Because really? he simply wasn't into awards, but the evening the Grinch um, showed for the first time on television. Now, my father never talked about his work, never brought it home, never talked about other actors, but my phone rang, and I I was married, and I had two young boys, and and he said, "I've I've just done something, and it's going to be on television tonight on the telly tonight and um, I think you and the boys might enjoy it I, I, I think it's pretty good and now he never had ever called and suggested something to of his to watch he was so modest and and never ever brought up what he had just done or was about to do or suggest that we watch something and I was just blown away. And so, of course, we watched it. And to say it, I think it's pretty good. Yeah, it won a Grammy for it. Yeah. Darn good. And, that, and that's well over 50 years ago. Yeah. And, and I now have the Grammy. but uh, <laughs> And we cherish it. And it's a f- beloved family tradition, but it's a beloved family tradition and how many thousands of homes around the world uh, every christmas so that's a that's that's an example of how modest he was and not into accolades and awards he just loved what he did and felt so lucky to be able to continue to do it throughout his life he had he knew the struggles that he had gone through. And that's why um, he was so pleased um, to have had the opportunity to be one of the founding members of the Screen Actors Guild. And his card number was number nine. But he never talked about it. Uh, It was when those uh, 12 actors got together and formed the guild. It was very dangerous work. They were putting their careers on the line. of, of They ran the risk of never working again. And my mother told me uh, one time that when they uh, were at a party, they would dance by one another on the dance floor and whisper, Meeting Tuesday night at so and so's house and dance right on by, you know, because they just, they'd park blocks away from one another's house when they, and then walk to the meeting because it was forming a union uh, against the studios uh, in opposition to how the studios and the producers and directors were treating actors. At that time, when Frankenstein was made, um, it, um, the SAG was formed in 1933. Um, actors were treated like a piece of meat. And they um, they simply uh, they worked 19, 20 hour days if that's what it took. Uh, they were there were no royalties or residuals. There was no, my father lost 25 pounds during the making of Frankenstein uh, when he made the mummy uh, uh that makeup was so uh, I, I'll go back to Frankenstein first that makeup took four hours to put on every morning it, the camera doesn't lie so it had to be exactly the same every day um and it took three hours to take off every night. So that's almost an entire working day now. And then they would go and shoot a, the day's work. And they had no concern for the actors, whatsoever. Uh, they didn't use doubles. That was actually my father in that, in that um, uh, wardrobe with heavy boots and heavy wardrobe in the August heat, actually carrying Colin Clive up the back lot hill of Universal. And, and they did three or four shots of that. That was actually my father carrying Colin Clive up the ladder in, in the, in the mill, time and time again, till James Whale, who was slightly sadistic, to say the least, <laughs> um, until he thought he got the shot right. Um, so there was no concern given to the actors at that time. When uh, my father made The Mummy, that, that gauze wrapping took almost the same length of time to do. Now, that was only that one shot of The Mummy in that film. Yeah. And that... Wrapping took almost the same time as as the Frankenstein makeup to put on. And it was gauze and it was dampened and then dried and another layer dampened and dried. And the funny story about it, when they finished putting on the makeup, uh, the wrappings, my father pointed out that they had neglected to put in a fly. (laughs) So, so they were facing a rather long shooting day so they had to rethink it and redo it and so that took even longer and then by the time they were ready to shoot they shot I don't know something like a 14 hour day and at the end of the day my father passed out Wow. flopped on the stage because he, all his body fluids had been absorbed by the wardrobe and he was totally dehydrated and he had to be rushed off and rehydrated. Never gave it a thought. Wow. So um, the founding of the Guild was very, very important to those members to once they had a voice, had established a voice of their own and a position of their own in the the business, they felt it was so important to provide a vehicle for young upcoming actors to, to have some rights and a vehicle by which they could voice their concerns and their, their objections and their and protect their rights, and that's what SAG started out to be, um, and remains so for many many years. My father was on the board way into the forties as as a uh, um, he was he, he was a compromiser. He put people together and he he negotiator for contracts and 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 new new rules, and he stayed on the board late into the 40s. And then in uh, 49, he moved back to New York uh, to uh, embrace the new medium of television.
0: It's funny that you mentioned the um, you, your father uh, in such grueling work. I did read that it was in August and having all of that uh, heavy clothing on and all of that makeup on. Uh, and, I, and your father was only 5'11", um, same height as me, but when you think of, uh, the monster, you think of a big lumbering. So he obviously had, uh, what was he on? Like some kind of like... Lift.
1: Blaster boots. Yeah. Blaster boots. They were elevated about two inches. The secret was they shot up. shortened okay. the sleeves and shot all the shots up.
0: That's pretty smart. Yeah, because when you think of him, you think Jeez. of such a big... Yeah, big <laughs> Big monster. I, and you had mentioned uh, Jack Pierce, who obviously was the head of makeup uh, at the time for Universal. Was the makeup idea for Frankenstein his his creation entirely, or did your father have some input in what he thought would make the makeup look really, really good?
1: Jack, had st- uh, Jack studied anatomy, and that's where the flathead and everything came from. Uh, My father took out a partial bridge on one side to give the indentation. Really? Um, Yeah. And um, he came up with some idea to make the eyes look a little better. But other than that, it was um, all Jack. Um, I have some home movies that um, show another side to how... uh, what a genius Jack was, he tinted the makeup a slight green so that it would look a deadly gray in black and white movies. Mm-hmm. And my color home movies uh, that I have of, of on the set of Son of Frankenstein uh, show uh, that the makeup is a, slight, a slightly tinted green. And that's why the toys are green. Most yeah. of the toys you see are green. Yeah. But it was only so that in black and white it would sh- it would look a deadly gray.
0: And in terms of the physical uh, demanding, did he have to do any kind of training for that? I know you did. I, I saw in another interview that I uh, I was watching that he actually had a few back surgeries after the filming of Frankenstein from having to lift uh dr frankenstein like you said uh up and down those those hills and everything did he have to get into any kind of physical training or do any kind of physical shape or was he just naturally he could just do it
1: well he had he had to wear for the role he had to wear braces on his legs so that he would walk in that manner so he would strut yeah um But that made it all the more difficult to do the things he did. Uh, Carry someone up a ladder, carry someone up a hill, pick up anything or anybody. It made it all the more difficult. My father had a back problem, but it was exacerbated by the tasks he had to do. Uh, So he did have... Ultimately, my father had three back surgeries, but one following Frankenstein, and, you know, then he had to have two more.
2: So just knowing uh, all, like, the physical toll and how everything you know was for him did he have any hesitations like moving forward and making other movies like did he really think to himself like because of all the physical demands that he had and all the hours of makeup like was there ever a moment where he hesitated and thought maybe um he didn't want to
1: continue making the movies heavens no <laughs> he <laughs> didn't loved think. heavens no he loved what he did and he was often asked, or the most frequent question I think he probably was asked, and he was certainly asked it a lot, was if he minded being typecast. And he always said, heavens no, he felt it was a lucky act- actor who was typecast. Um, that um, he felt that that anybody, no matter what their business was, mm-hmm. uh, was lucky to be typecast. Um, uh, to establish a trademark um, or a, um, uh, an identity in whatever they chose to do it, in their life. Uh, and he said, isn't that what everybody strives for, to be recognized as good at whatever they do in, in, for a profession in their life? and so he felt very very fortunate to be um known for recognized for and he said the best advice he ever was given was uh one night he was waiting in the rain outside the studio in a bus stop and to go home and lon cheney senior stopped and gave him a ride home in his car and uh, they started talking and and it, he, I, I, don't know verbatim what the question my father asked him was, but somewhere along the lines of, of, of did he have any advice or suggestion? And Lon, and Janie Senior said, find something you can do that nobody else can do, and then or is doing, and then do it better than anybody else, and you'll be just fine.
0: Well, he followed the advice for sure because not (laughs) not to any disrespect of the Frankensteins that followed. Obviously, uh, your father in the original uh, The Bride of and the Son of and then kind of walked away from the role uh, and allowed, uh, I believe, Bella Lugosi played it in one movie. Lon Chaney Jr. played it in another. Bella
1: did and Chaney Jr. Jr. did and Fred Gwynn, its interpretation of it. And, um, oh... Glenn Strange as well. Glenn Strange did. And um, my father made the decision to only do the three films because he he felt a a debt of gratitude to the role. And tongue in cheek, he said the monster was his best friend. Uh, But he felt that, yeah, he felt that the roles and the scripts. had gone as far as they could uh, without making uh, the the creature um, the brunt of bad jokes, bad scripts, bad casting, and he just didn't want to be a part of it. He felt a certain debt of gratitude.
0: The, uh, the monster uh, obviously was intimidating when the movie first came out, and obviously the movie debuted on November 21st, which was just two days uh, before his 44th birthday, uh, I believe, uh, and during the Great Depression. And this is a movie where if you think of horror movies today and obviously more, uh, you know, they, they can do a lot more, but this was a movie that had a, a, a prologue in the beginning kind of warning audience members uh, that it could be too much I mean, was that, was that a scare tactic or was that truly, were they really afraid of, uh, you know, audience members and how they might react to, to your
1: father? It doesn't really matter which it was, it worked. It did work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: it, it did. Um, my, you know, my, I remember hearing, I'm not sure who told me or, or if it's true, so I'd love to get your, well, your father, when he's first seen in the movie, he backs in and he turns around slowly. Uh, and I, I believe I heard that people actually were so overwhelmed uh, by, by the look of him that they actually were fainting in the movie theaters. Is that actually accurate? Were people really that terrified of
1: him? I read the same articles. <laughs> <laughs> believe it or not, no matter how old you may think I am, I wasn't born. When that movie was made, nor yeah. was it of theater-going age. I was born um, on my father's uh, 51st birthday when, during the making of Son of Frankenstein.
0: Uh, in, in The Son of Frankenstein, and this is another... Uh, story i'd like to get fact checked um you, you were born during the filming of son of frankenstein and there was a story of your father showing up to the hospital in, in full makeup Is, <laughs> it, obviously i know you wouldn't remember but did your father and, and mother ever tell you about the stories or what was like the doctor or, or the nurse's uh idea <laughs>
1: that's urban legend um Put it politely, there's uh, a well known photograph of my father at the hospital in a perfectly respectable suit okay. <laughs> with the nurse holding me. No, do you really think that they would have let him off the set? <laughs>
0: <That's true. laughs> this is true.
1: Into a taxi. <laughs> Onto the streets in that makeup.
0: This is this is a true point. This is a good point. Uh, <laughs> no. Wi- Wikipedia not- Wikipedia failed me on that one.
1: <laughs> Don't count <come> on Wikipedia. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Have you ever seen a picture of that?
0: No, 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 never. I, I
2: think there would be photographic evidence. And
0: you won't. It <laughs> yeah. won't. This is true.
2: Um, I, I know you had said, like, you were born, you know, obviously, at you know, the during the Son of Frankenstein. So was there a, a point for you growing up? Like, were you allowed? Were you fully immersed in the monster movies? Like, you know, was it something ritual for you as a family with your father? Or, or was it a point where he, you know, allowed you to watch the movies. And obviously as a young kid watching monster movies, it's not something unless something you're my husband, you're my husband <laughs> are allowed to do it Five, six and seven years old. Um, you know, was there a point where your father kind of said like, you know, this is, this is me, this is this movie and let you watch it. Or was it, you know, did you just know, was it just a culture for you?
1: He didn't watch his own movies. <laughs>
2: I know actually a lot of, uh, I've heard a lot of, yeah, people don't. They they don't. They don't.
1: Because they think, I could have done that this way. Or I could have done it that way. I could have done it better. Or maybe I should have. No, he didn't watch his own movies. I'll tell you a story, though. When he did, he didn't get to watch the Daily Rushes of Frankenstein because he was in the makeup chair getting his makeup off still. Wow. And so, and he wasn't invited to the premiere. So he didn't see Frankenstein That's crazy. for quite a while. And so my mother was a uh, graduate of uh, UC Berkeley. Uh, she was a librarian. And um, so they took a trip after Frankenstein was released, uh, and he had some off time and had gotten some sleep um, and was uh, um, and it was such a huge success, and they had a little money in their pocket, they took a trip up to Berkeley to visit one of my mother's um, college friends. And my mother's name was Dorothy, and people called her Dot. That was her nickname. So they, uh, when they went up to visit her, he wasn't really recognizable yet, but the f- film was still playing, and he hadn't, they hadn't seen it. So they talked her roommate into going um, to see it with them. He was curious what it was like because it was such a hit and so they snuck into the they paved their way but they snuck in the back of the theater and when the scene comes up and i mean the film was a big hit but nobody knew what he looked like yeah. yet and so they when the scene comes up that he turns around in the door her roommate, her college roommate, said, Oh, my God, Dot, how can you live with such a creature? (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, they were asked to leave the theater.
2: Oh,
1: my God. She made such a scene.
2: So they didn't even Because she
1: screamed. Well, he wasn't that recognizable. Wow. They were asked to leave the theater, so he didn't even get to see the whole film then. I, I don't actually know when he saw the whole film the first time, but that was his first attempt at seeing the whole film. They may have gone back on their own the next day. I don't know. <laughs> I really for so but the first time I saw it, I was 19 years old, and I watched it on television all by myself in um, my, uh, my living room. And I watched it rather studiously because by that time, of course, I'd heard so much about it that I wasn't frightened. And I thought, oh, it is quite an undertaking for 1931. It's quite a film. But I approached it totally differently than I would have, of course, if I'd watched it at a younger age.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: He obviously is known uh, for his roles uh, as Frankenstein's monster in The Mummy and in the horror genre, but he did, uh, and he wasn't uh, Frankenstein, that was Glenn Strange and Bud Abbott and Lou Costello meet Frankenstein, um, but he did get to play a role with them later as the killer Boris Karloff. Did he enjoy doing the comedy aspects with like uh, Abbott and Costello, and how was that working with those two? Did he ever mention them?
1: No. As as I said earlier, he never talked about his work and he never talked about um, other actors. He just didn't bring his work home and he just didn't talk about it. He he enjoyed, um, he loved uh, when he was, when he went back to um, New York and was working not only in television, but also uh, to do Arsenic and Old Lace, and subsequently did um, Peter Pan and mm-hmm. um, um, uh, The Lark opposite Julie Harris, for which he was nominated for Tony. He loved doing legitimate theater again. Uh, but when he did when he did Arsenic and Old Lace, um, he nearly didn't do it because. He had had he had a lisp some but sometime during my life, um, somebody asked me, "Well, what about his lisp?" And I said, "What lisp?" Because that's just the way my father ta- spoke. Yeah, right. But he did have a lisp. but what I didn't know is when he was a boy, he had a stutter that he had to get over, which he did. and but when he was talked into... Um, uh, doing Arsenic and Old Lace and rehearsals started and it was a stellar cast, um, his stutter came back and he was so nervous about doing legitimate theater again because he'd done so many films by that point. And he blew every rehearsal. He couldn't remember his lines. He had a stutter. He had a lisp. He, he, just, he just blew rehearsal after rehearsal after rehearsal, and everybody was so patient. And by this time, he was, he was very well-known, very famous. And, and he had said initially when uh, Lindsay and the Krauss had asked him to do it, he said, oh, my goodness, no, I never, I have no business doing a Broadway play. I wouldn't know what I was doing, et cetera, et cetera. And no, 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 no. And then he asked what the play was about, and they told him, and he said, oh, that sounds like great fun, but who was in it? And then he said, oh, I could not hold my own with, those, with that cast. And then, well, there'd have to be three more important roles in it than, than mine, and... Mm. Well, they, they finally talked him into it, but then he blew all the rehearsals, and he took himself for a long walk, and he decided that he'd go back and he tell them he simply couldn't do it, simply couldn't do it, he, he couldn't do it, and he did finally go back and tell and told them, and they talked him into one more one more try, one more set of rehearsals, and. He did much better, and of course, than the rest of theater history. He played over in, over, I don't know, 4,000 4, performances of Arsenic, all told. He went with it to Alaska, he went with it out to um, the, the, um, out in the Pacific with it, he went all over with it. And he just loved the role and he had such a good time and he brought the house down every night. And the reason he couldn't be in the film is because they wouldn't release him from the play to do the film. Wow. So, And he was so disappointed not to be able to do the film. When he did uh, Peter Pan, he loved doing that because he loved working with kids. And the kids would come backstage every night to try on the hook. You know, <laughs> and he just loved doing that. And he had me, I, I got to go back and visit him uh, for, I think, five or six days, and I got to watch it from back, backstage and out front and from everywhere. And at the end of my visit, he said, well, I can tell you don't have the fire in the belly to be an, a- to <laughs> be an actor because you paid more attention to Nana the dog than you did to me.
0: <laughs>
1: so there went my career.
0: <laughs> uh, my, my, wife would have, my wife would have paid more attention to the dog as well I'm sure
1: yeah um, fortunately I never wanted to go into the business but had I that would have shot it down right there yeah. <laughs> and then when he did the lark with Julie Harris he said that was the highlight of his career he loved, he and Julie just were uh, just... Loved each other and 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 had. There was pure magic on stage and off stage too. They just adored each other. Yeah. So oh, he, he just he made two other he did two other plays, and and they were deep into rehearsals in one of the others, and the producer saw that hadn't been paying much attention to the who had been cast in it and when he saw that Boris Karloff was in it, he said, oh, no, no, they'll think it's a horror play. <laughs> and so, they, so the poor director had to go to my father and and say, I'm sorry, Boris, but the producer just doesn't want you in the play. My father said, oh, I'm so disappointed. I really wanted to do this play. And he said, but I understand it's not your fault, and it's up to the producer. But my father wrote the producer a letter that said um, – I, prom, I understand your position, but I promise I would not have eaten the baby at the end of the first act. And <laughs> it, the producer got such a kick out of that letter that he changed his mind. My father was in the play anyway.
2: That's, fantastic. That's really cool. That really yeah. is. I mean, it really is. Probably the best thing about it is you know when you see people like your father who are just they have something so special, and they bring such magic to, you know, film and to theater. Like, when these people can just embody this character so effortlessly, you know, it really makes it enjoyable for viewers like us, and I think that's why a lot of us are able to connect to it, because it, it doesn't seem like work or a job, or, you know, he's
1: putting... He loved, in it. He loved it. He had a wonderful sense of humor, a wonderful British sense of humor, and very often it was, he'd turn his humor back on himself, and And um, he simply loved doing what he did. Fantastic. You can certainly see it.
0: Your father, (laughs) you know, went on to have two stars in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He was also, uh, in 1997, he was featured on the U.S. Postal Service series of classic monster movie stamps, which I would imagine is just absolutely awesome. (laughs) Uh, And
1: again in 2004.
0: I'm almost positive I have them, too. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he's been on three U.S. postage stamps. Wow! Which is uh, I don't know anybody else who has been.
0: No. Yeah. Oh, well, he, you know,
1: philatelists. <laughs> philat- <laughs> I can't say that, but philatelists tells me tell me that they don't know anybody else who's been on three stamps.
0: Wow. Interesting. Um, we got to ask you also, uh, for your own opinion, uh, obviously being Halloween, what is your favorite, uh, scary movie of all time?
1: I don't like scary movies, so I don't. Okay.
0: Watch
1: them. <laughs> okay. Bad casting. Me is my father's daughter, but That's, uh, I don't like scary movies. I leave the room during Murder, She Wrote*.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, Sarah, you've been super gracious with your time. I, I, We really appreciate you sitting down with us and talking uh, to us about your father, uh, Boris Karloff, who has had a huge impact on my life uh, and obviously a movie that I believe we're going on the 89th anniversary of this November. Uh, hopefully, uh, for years and years and years to come, will be something that people can enjoy uh, and watch and just uh you know really just be in awe of what filmmaking was in 1931 and and how his career just went from there uh is there anything uh you have that you would like to promote uh in terms of your father or you know anything at all
1: no just to know that he was a lovely human being he loved what he did he loved his fans he was grateful to them and if it weren't for the fans i'd be in the other room cleaning my oven <laughs> 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 well, yeah. You he, he just, <laughs> just, yeah, he just, he um, just, the fans are so wonderful. They really, truly are. They are so gracious, so respectful. Um, the, I, obviously, I haven't done any shows this year because everything is locked down, but oh, yeah. uh, at the shows, they, they just. Uh, I, I learned so much from, from the fans. They know far more about my father's career than I could ever learn. And um, they share stories with me that are just so heartwarming about the influence my father and his films have had on their lives and um, his appeal um, and uh, and his legacy. It's just multi generational. It's just amazing, and it's it's been the most wonderful experience. It has enriched my life meeting his fans. It's it's a it's a treasure, and it's a gift to me um, knowing and meeting his fans. It really is. So, it's uh, I can't thank you enough for this interview because I learn from you every time I I meet with his fans, and every time I do it an interview. And every time I do a show, I'm, I'm, my life is enriched.
0: Well, you have two fans here for sure. And we want to thank you very, very much for sitting down with us for this hour and talking about uh, the man, uh, the monster uh, and the really genuine nice man, Boris Karloff. So thank you so much, Sarah.
1: Thank you. Thank you. It was great fun. Thank you.